And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you've said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The word of the Lord. This week and next week, we're going to be looking at uh, kind of the same idea, but from two different perspectives. We're going to be looking at the idea of what does it mean to live in Egypt. Today, we see that through the lens of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, handing down the promises at the very end of their lives as their final acts, handing down God's promises before they die. So in short, we're given three deathbed scenes to ponder this morning. But when we think about it, it adds in a new twist to the whole hero story. Adds in something new. It adds in the element of children. What do we do with our children? How do they factor into God's promises and the whole hero story? You could say that our passage today deals with the notion of heroic parenting. Because children are an integral part of God's story. This sermon actually comes at a coincidental time for me personally. Uh, If you have not heard, Melissa and I are expecting our first baby. We are excited about that. We did it. I am all smiles and high fives these days, that's for sure. We couldn't be more excited, but it changes the way you think. And if you don't think God likes irony, he has a guy preach a sermon on parenting when he's only been one for 20 weeks. You'd be mistaken. But we are incredibly excited about all that it means, but the more you think about it and as time goes on, reality hits. And you begin to think new thoughts, new thoughts about your own life not just the life that's coming into the world. Even now in the smallest of ways, I think, what kind of dad am I going to be? What kind of man am I? What do I have to offer my children? Please, Lord, do not let them turn out like me. (laughs) Needless to say, our prayer life has increased exponentially over the last few weeks. But if we step back and think about it, we realize that our, child, our own children and our own sense of identity and purpose are intricately intertwined and they're inseparable. 
Because the truth is, we can't separate our children from our own story, and we can't separate us from their story. A few weeks back, we said that you can't fully understand the hero's story until you understand the conflict that the hero is trying to fight. Back in Genesis 3, when God announces the judgment for sin on Adam and Eve, He tells them He has some bad news for them. He says that the war that they started will not end with them, but it will continue on, and the enemy will wage war against their children long after they're gone. The enemy will seek to destroy them and mislead them and trick them and deceive them and kill them. Children are at the heart of the conflict because they're born in the same mess you're in. There's good news because on the flip side, children are at the heart of God's promises to heal and save the world. Remember two weeks ago when Ryan preached on Abraham and his calling out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God calls Abraham and makes his covenant with him. And what does God say? God says, Abraham, this promise is for you and for your children. I will be your God and I will be the God of your children long after you're dead and gone. You have to trust me with your children's story. That's how God designed it. That if we embrace God's promises, we also have to embrace the fact that you'll have to leave your children behind in this fallen world. So what do we leave behind with our children? What do we leave behind after we're long dead and gone? Well, if we look at Jacob, we see Jacob living in Egypt at the time of his death. Well, how did he get there? Well, God wrote a story and orchestrated a story that his son that he thought was dead was actually the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire in the world. A seven-year famine had hit that part of the world, and people began to journey to Egypt to find refuge and safety and food to survive. So when Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt, they find this little brother that they thought was long dead and gone. They find him as the second most powerful man in the largest empire in the world. So Jacob, Joseph learns that his father Jacob is still alive, and he says, bring Jacob here into Egypt so that I can provide for him. And then Pharaoh tells Joseph, he says, go get your father Jacob and bring him here to Egypt and give him the best lands that Egypt has to offer. Give him uh, land in Goshen. If you step back and think about it, what wealth Jacob had to experience? How much fortune did he have to have as being the father of Jacob, Joseph? The father of Joseph would have wanted for nothing. If that's true, then imagine for a second how easy it would be for Jacob to look around one day while living in all of that wealth and riches and think, this is a great place to settle down. This is a great place to call home. We've got everything we need right here for generations. This is a perfect place to belong. How easily would that have been? He so easily could have had comfort in all the wealth of Egypt. He could have stepped back and looked at the fact that he's living as a citizen of the biggest country and most powerful country on earth. He could have looked at the beautiful water source of the Nile that gave life to the surrounding area and gave beauty, and he could have looked at it with all of its jet skis and boats and restaurants along the harbor. He could have felt comfort by looking at the soaring home values by living in the wealthiest county in Egypt and knowing that demand is only growing up. He could have felt confident in his family's future success and financial stability because his children went to the top elementary schools in the Egyptian ISD. 
The same challenge that was before Jacob is before you today. You have to listen to that small voice in your heart that reminds you, you live in Egypt. You live in Egypt. And on his deathbed, many years later, we witnessed Jacob's most heroic moment. Of all the things Joseph, Jacob had done, the author of Hebrews picks out this moment on his deathbed, his final act. Jacob brings his sons close and blesses them and tells them, when I die, carry my bones out of here. When I die, take my bones to the promised land and bury me there, because this is Egypt, and we don't belong here, boys. So keep your shoes on, because you don't either. Jacob reminds his children that it isn't where God's people belong, despite all the wealth and comfort that Egypt had to offer. Jacob said, this is Egypt. It isn't the promised land, and it's not what God has promised us. We belong far from here. Now Jacob knew that, yes, God had provided richly and abundantly for his people. He gave them many wonderful blessings that were good. And God blessed them richly. But what makes Jacob a hero is that Jacob doesn't mistake, doesn't make the mistake of confusing God's provision for his promises. He doesn't make the mistake of confusing what God provides as his actual promises. He doesn't make the mistake of thinking that God's promises can be found in a toy or real estate or a career. He understands that all those things are cheap replicas of the promised land. And he wants the real thing. In his last words, he hands down his faith in God's promise for his children to carry on. Long after he's gone, and he trusts in God to write that story however he wishes. You see, you have to understand that you live inside of a magician's trick. It distracts you with shiny veneer and awe. It points you over here and distracts you this way when you should be looking this way. Egypt is always offering you promises to get you to believe that this is where you belong, so pursue greatness here. Be great here. It sells you the lie that you can have heaven now. You can have, you can have the promised land right here, right now. You can have heaven in the car you drive and the clothes you wear and the home you live in and the neighborhood and in a sweet man cave. It offers us promises all over the place. I want you to settle for a replica of the promised land and it tricks you into settling for far less then God has promised you because it's easier. And you can even hear that siren's call from Egypt, how powerful it is that just days after crossing the Red Sea, all the Israelites complain and say, let's go back. At least in Egypt we had bread and potatoes and onions. Egypt always offers you promises all over the place that it can give you that identity and satisfaction that you're longing for. And it can trick you into thinking that you actually know what it is that you long for. It promises that you just have to work hard and get that high-paying job and everything's going to fall into place. It promises that if you just find that right spouse and it's just every day is going to be romantic bliss, the trash is always taken out and there's always flowers on the table. It promises that you can finally feel good about yourself if you just kind of got back to your college weight. So it gives you 15 different diets to try. It takes good things and it tricks you. It wants you to find your identity in them. 
Egypt promises you that he can offer you, everything that God offers you, but the reality of Egypt's trick is that it starts off so pretty and shiny and hopeful, but in the end, it only leads to slavery. Because you keep laying, because you keep buying into promises that it can't keep. And we keep believing that those things will finally one day pay off, but they don't. Egypt is a dangerous place, and as parents, we have to recognize that whatever promises we buy into, we inevitably will pass those promises down to our children. So ask yourself a tough question this morning. What promises are you handing down to your children? What is it that you spend the most time instilling in their hearts? Where are you pointing them? What are you offering them? The hard part is that we do want good things for our children. What good parent doesn't? Of course we want good things, but it's so easy to take a good thing that God has provided for us and instill in them that that's the most important thing. That this is the most important thing to be the man or woman that I want you to be. And the Bible says time and time again that that is an unbelievably deadly mistake. Jesus talks in one of my favorite parables, the rich fool. Or Jesus has teaching in the parable, he says... Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not treasures here on earth. He says there was once a rich man who had such an abundant harvest that he said, what am I going to do with all of this wealth? So he tears down his barns and then he builds barns that are twice as big and he fills them up and then he sits back and says, now I can sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says to him, you fool. Do you not know that tonight your very soul will be required of you? And then the punchline is he says, and then who will own all that you have accumulated for yourself? The last thing we need is for our children to live in great material wealth, yet utter spiritual poverty. A great job is a blessing and you have to work for it. So we drill into our children to get good grades and get into college and land that great job, but what happens when the recession hits and the company closes and goes belly up and your child is laid off? Are you instill hard work, hard work, hard work is key because that's what you were taught. But what happens when they work so hard to obtain the promises that hard work offers that it's only after their third marriage and four kids later that they begin to actually think that something might be wrong? We can so easily make the mistake of offering them good things, blessings. But the problem is that we lose perspective of what the true promised land is. And if we lose perspective, then how can we expect our children to have the right one? And if we make that mistake, then we're really just, we're not teaching our children how to be sojourners, we're teaching them how to be settlers. We're not teaching them how to journey to the promised land, but we're teaching them how to stay in Egypt. So how do we gain right perspective about what we're offering? How do we have maybe a glimpse of clarity as to how we should prioritize things? Well, put yourself in the shoes of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph for a second on their deathbed. Fast forward your life. Maybe a day, maybe 50 years. What would you say to your kids? What promises do you leave them with? You say things like, sweetie, make sure you practice the piano for at least 30 minutes a day. Or son, you'd better get your math grades up. 
Deathbeds are places where our priorities get redecorated and rearranged. And they go out the window. Deathbeds remind us that we die just as rich as an old woman busting rocks in the rock quarry in India. Reminds us that the world is actually a broken, uncontrollable, and painful place. And Egypt sells you the trick to be great here above all else. This is a beautiful place to belong. It sells us the the lie that we don't ever have to leave. It's great here. But if you look behind the curtain of that trick, you find that it's actually driven and motivated by pain and suffering and loss and brokenness. Because this really is a fallen world. And I think it's so easy to parent in such a fashion or even think of it in my own terms, as limited as it is, of how easy it is that we really are teaching our children ways of avoiding pain and brokenness rather than teaching them the only thing that can conquer and overcome it. We have to constantly have the perspective before us that hope can only be found in pursuing the promises of God and not settling for what He provides for us. So how do we do this? How do we hand down better promises to our children? Well, if we're honest, I think we inherently know as parents that the world is a broken place. Now, I don't say that as a theological statement. You know, it's like, well, you know, sin, sin's here. We know it's, we know it's a bad place. No. I think as parents, you feel it. You feel it. It's the same reason that I joke with Melissa that she better get, well, She better get ready for a five-hour-long car ride home whenever we leave the birthing center because I'm going to be going about five miles an hour, all right? You just feel protective in ways that you've never felt protective before. I'm just going to be that guy just at 10 and 2, just gripping it white white knuckle tight. I can guarantee you that. You know, it's like, sweet, look at that guy. You know, rolling down the window. Hey, fella, you know? What's that guy going, like 35? Jeez, slow down. If you see a black Malibu driving slowly on the shoulder in late October, well, that's the Pummel family. I mean, if it's a girl, she's grounded until she's 35. Hope you like your room, sweetie. Daddy loves you. I think we inherently know that the world is broken, and so we constantly try to protect ourselves from it. And I think you know it, and I think you've experienced it, because you see evidence of it in the thoughts that you have where you think, I want my kids to have better than I had. I don't want my kids to go through what I went through. And that's why it's so easy to buy into Egypt's promises that we can avoid pain and suffering and sorrow and discomfort now. It's easy, just do this or do this. We love being distracted so we don't have to think about that fear or face the areas in our lives that are broken and remind us that this world is as well. So, of course, we want to protect our kids from pain. Who wouldn't? So we teach them. The problem is that we teach them to run from it in the same way that we do. We want to wrap our kids up in as much bubble wrap as possible before sending them out the door to college. But the world bites. The world stings and it's cold. I think one of the worst things you can do as a parent is fall for the trick that you can really protect your children from pain and brokenness and loss in a completely, utterly fallen world. That's a lie. Because if you think you can protect them from getting hurt, then all you're actually really going to do in the end is keep them from actually knowing the healer. Because if they don't need to be healed, then they don't need the gospel. 
I think one of the best things you can offer your children is to face your own brokenness because this is where God's promises truly become real. And this is when you're ready to actually hand down God's promises. Because I think what really drives our lives underneath the surface, if we're honest with ourselves, is that our lives are driven, our parenting is driven, and our actions are driven in so many ways by fear and pain and suffering. But it's only when we face that fact that we actually become ready to leave Egypt. I read an article this week, or last week actually, about an anesthesiologist named David Wilsey. He was 30 years old, and he was a World War II anesthesiologist. He was very successful, and then he was drafted, and he spent seven months in combat doing uh, surgery after surgery. And he was actually very good for his job, and he very good at his job, and he was well decorated. And what struck me about his story is that every day for the first seven months while he was in World War II, he wrote a letter every single day to his wife. Every single day. Didn't miss a day. And in these letters, you actually read them, and they're just love letters to his wife. Just adoring her. Telling her how beautiful she is and how he dreams of her. Of how he dreams of his children that he left behind. Two girls and a boy that were young. How he can't wait to get home to see and hold his children and his family and to be together again. And his wife would send him, send him letters back with pictures of his kids and he would just dote on his kids in these letters and he would say, tell them every day that their daddy loves them and he's coming home. Tell them every day. Tell them every day that their daddy thinks of them and he thinks they're so beautiful and intelligent and smart. And I just stare at their pictures and I adore them. And so it was that way for seven months. And then there's a period of seven days where David Wilsey's wife does not get a letter. And finally, one day, she does get a letter a week later, and the letters took a turn. David expressed that he had spent the last seven days in Dachau, concentration camp. One of the biggest concentration camps that the Germans ran. It was a hideous place. And in his letters, you see a completely different man from then on. The things he described, the reason these letters are so important and that they're going into a museum now is because they were recently discovered and it gives a completely different picture of the sanitized GI that we thought we had. Yes, they were good, but there's some really dark spots and Dachau was one of them. The GIs come in and they see all of this brokenness and pain. I'm going to be gentle here with our little ones, but the piles of victims, the emaciation, the starvation, the torture chambers, gas chambers, they see all of it. And no Americans had a clue what was inside of these places, but when they finally get there, it breaks them. It breaks them. And so they go down, GI after GI that you hear David Wilsey talk about in his letters, GIs would go crazy. Open-air executions on the SS guard, torturing. There was no law for days and days and days, and it was utter chaos. The philandering, the brokenness, the pain that he saw are all in these letters and it changed David Wilsey forever because from then on his letters were dark and painful and critical and vengeful and filled with hate. Command, just bringing down and criticizing his commanding officers and the black soldiers, criticizing the Jews for being ungrateful, 
criticizing everybody else, and hating the world because he saw it for what it is. And his children actually found those letters a few years ago. They never read them, never knew they exist, never even knew they existed. They just always knew that daddy had a green chest that you do not get close to or else he blew up. So they forgot about it and David Wilsey died in 1996 and his wife recently died in 2008. So his children are cleaning out their mother's house and they come up to the attic and they come across this green chest. And they open it up and on top of it are pictures that David Wilsey took of all of the victims and all of the horrors of Dachau, and it's just pictures of hell on earth. And above it was hanging a Nazi flag over this screen chest, and they open, open it up after they take the letters off, and they grab all the letters that are actually in chronological order, and they start to read them. The funny thing is, they start from day one. They start reading them, and they said in an interview that the first question they all had is, who is this man? Who is this man? This loving, caring, gentle man that just dotes on his wife all the time. Just constantly loving his children. Caring for them. Talking about how precious they are. Who is this man who is so deeply in love with his wife that it just boils over in everything that he says? And then they start reading the letters from Dachau with all the anger and rage. And they said, oh, that's the dad I know. That's the dad that raised me. And it was so painful for them, they couldn't even read the letters, and they still haven't to this day. They put him away. And in the interview, the guy said, what was your dad like? He said, well, he was cold, he was harsh. We always felt like a disappointment to him. He was always telling us to work harder, and that weakness is not allowed in this house, and neither is failure. Work hard. Because it's a cold world, and you can overcome it. But you got to work hard. Always critical of him always putting down his wife and insulting her intelligence. And she said that he used to give us swimming lessons, but then afterwards he would grade us and he'd always give us D's and C's, always reminding us that our best was never, ever good enough. The question I'd ask you is, David Wilsey sees the world, sees the pain and brokenness, and it turns him into something that destroyed his children. But the truth is, he thought he was protecting them. But what was he actually protecting them from? Certainly wasn't a cold world. His children always hearing, work harder, be the best. No failures allowed here. Always impatient, always flying off the handle, yelling at somebody. It's simply a story where all of his unwillingness to face his fear and the pain of a broken world simply destroyed his kids in the end. Because the truth is, He never left Dachau. He never left. And the saddest part of the whole story was that his son as a 65-year-old man, his son as a 65-year-old man was sitting there with the interviewer, and the interviewer took all the letters and put them on the coffee table and said, do you know how much your dad just adored you in some of these letters? Let me read some of it to you. And he just would read it in just this beautiful language, just talking about his son. And his son just looked at the interviewer and said, did he? I want nothing to do with my father. And he changed the subject. My point is this, that for better or for worse, you carry the bones of your parents with you. 
And for better or for worse, your children will carry your bones with them. This is a very personal story for me because my grandpa was in World War II. He was a GI, and he was actually one of the first people to walk through the gates of Dachau. My point is that sometimes there's more pain and brokenness that affects you than you ever know. And the gospel is the invitation to face it and to not hand it down generation after generation after generation. The best thing you can offer your children is your willingness to face your own brokenness and pain and fear and to trust in Jesus as your only hope to heal you. But how do you do that? Where do we get that idea from this text of embracing pain? Well, we get it from the fact that Jacob worships on the head of his staff. Why does Jacob walk with the staff? Is it because he's an old man? No, Jacob walked with the staff all of his adult life. Why do you have a staff? Because he walked with a limp. He walked with a limp is because God gave that to him when he wrestled with God's promises. He embraces at the end of his life this picture of where pain and God's promises slam together. He embraces his pain because that's where God's promises became the most real, and that's where he encountered God in the most real and profound way. And he embraces this staff, which is this beautiful symbol of how we journey toward the promised land in this life. It's embracing our own pain because those are the places where, like Jacob, it becomes true of us. That's where we experience the truth of God's promises. But we have a better staff to cling to because we have the cross, and it's the same thing there. It's pain and God's promises slam together. The beauty of the story is that Joseph becomes just like his daddy. When Jacob or Joseph is an old man, he says the same words his father does. He says, Whenever I die, do not leave my bones here. I belong in the promised land. And so do you. Joseph said, my father's God will be my God. He would have known the story about his father, and he sees him clinging to that place that was so painful and yet so promising. The question I'd have for you as we close is, are you willing to let your children see you walk with a limp? Are you willing to let your children see that you're broken and that you're actively pursuing Jesus to bring you healing? Or do you just like to be the authority? The, authoritative figure that does no wrong? Do you like to run away from conflict? Pretend like everything's perfect? How do we let our children see us walk with a limp? We learn to live a life of repentance before our children and teach them to rest on the grace of the Lord Jesus, not in pretense, but by actually showing them what it is. We show them how it's done, and you may think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm already set in my ways. I'm already, I feel like a failure as a parent. I've always felt that way. I feel insecure. I feel like I can't change no matter what. And I feel like I'm always making mistakes, and I feel like all my habits are already set in and they're hard to break. Let me remind you with this, that in our whole sermon series, Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, Isaac was on his deathbed, Jacob on his deathbed, Joseph was on his deathbed, and Moses was 80 years old when they experienced God's promises as the most real that they'd ever experienced them. 
They were all old men and old women still embracing the promises, and that's where it became true. Your best days are ahead of you if you embrace the promises of God. Now, if you think about it, Jacob had a favorite son. He wasn't a great dad. This is a broken family. Abraham slept with Hagar. Joseph was a little brat that bragged to his brothers that he was the favorite and had a coat of many colors. We're not talking about the Cleaver family here. We're talking about real broken sinners that God still uses in profound ways to carry out his purposes that extend far beyond our imaginations. So maybe it looks like this. Son, I'm sorry I was so impatient with you and hard on you. I thought I was setting you up for success, but all I did was make you feel like a failure and insecure. But Jesus has been so patient with me because He loves me. And I want to learn to be more patient with you. Or, sweetie, I'm sorry I never was very good at making you feel loved because I was never shown love growing up and so I didn't know how. But I know that Jesus loves me in all my imperfection and I want to learn to be like Him and love you the way that He loves me. I'm sorry I worked so much and I wasn't there for you the way I should have been. I guess I valued feeling successful and having financial stability far more than loving you. But I know that Jesus has always been there for me and He's the only true security I have. I'm so sorry. I would imagine maybe in your own story you wish that some of those words would have been said to you. How healing would that have been? It's when we learn to embrace our brokenness and trust in Jesus as our only hope. That's when we're ready to hand down God's promises to our children because then they become real to us, not just a memory verse we pass along. It becomes a part of our story, of God's work in our lives. And just like Jacob, this is how we teach our children to be sojourners in a foreign land, not settlers, pointing them to things that dazzle but don't deliver. I said a few weeks ago that Hebrews 11 is like a long hallway in a museum with pictures on both sides, and on each of these pictures is actually their story underneath of their failures and their successes, and their, but it's the story of their faith and trust in the promises of God. But when you look at each picture, they're pointing you down to that doorway that leads to a room that Jesus is in all by Himself. Well, when you learn to embrace the fact that we're sinners and trust in Jesus and want to live that out, when you learn to walk before your children with a limp, your picture gets put on that wall. Because now you're the one sharing the story of how Jesus was faithful to you in the midst of all of your brokenness and failures and sin. And now you're the one pointing to that room at the end of the hall. Now you're the hero. Jesus embraced his pain and forsook all the promises of Egypt. Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world if he just would worship me, but instead he chooses the more difficult way. He clung to the pain of the cross to offer us a better promise than even Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph. He embraced the pain of the cross, trusting that God would heal him and resurrect him and bring him new life so that he could offer us a promise that's better than any other because he had to leave this world too, and he gives us a promise just the same way that the patriarchs did. But it's far better. He says, it's not that you leave my bone, I leave my bones with you. He says, I leave you my very life. I give it to you and I will never leave you, never forsake you, and never abandon you. And I will lead you 
to the promised land, no matter where you go, no matter how hard it gets, I am writing your story. In closing, I was in India last October with Tim Long, and Tim and I have a nasty habit of staying up until 1 or 2 in the morning and then wondering why we're tired the next morning. But one night we were staying up late chatting in Kolkata out in front of the hotel. And uh, we're just sitting there chatting, and uh, he checked his phone, and I was just talking, jabbering away while he was checking it. And I looked over, and Tim was weeping, just weeping. I said, what's wrong? In that moment, you're thinking, well, I hope a death didn't happen in the family. What happened? You know, I was worried. And, and he said, Debbie just sent me something in an email. And he said, I, I'm speechless. He said, it's so precious. And I said, what? He said, Debbie was on Stephen. Stephen Long's their son, who's a tanker in the Army, was on his division's Facebook page where they do updates. And they had a picture of Stephen on there. And she saw it and sent it to Tim. It wasn't a picture of him getting medals. It wasn't a picture of him getting promoted. Tim showed it to me. It was a picture of Stephen in Afghanistan in a broken, awful place. It's just a black and white picture of him reaching in to the Lord's table to lay hold of the promises. And Tim just said, I... I am a proud father. Let's pray. Father, we struggle to trust your promises. We struggle to know what to do with our fear. We're constantly confronted with our inability and our brokenness and our sadness, and yet we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to hand it over to you and ask you to heal us because it hurts. And I'll admit myself, I'm so easily distracted from things that offer just temporary comfort, just temporary anesthesia. I pray, Father, that you would teach us to claim your promises for ourselves so that we actually know what it's like to hand them down to our children. We ask that you would protect our children by teaching us to walk as disciples, teaching us to embrace you above all else, teaching us to invite you into those areas that we're weak and we're ashamed so that you might heal us, so that we might hand down our story, our story of healing to our children. I ask, Father, that you would protect our children, and I ask, Lord, that you would Give us the gift of seeing them come and be raised to love you more than anything else. We long for better things for our children and we trust that you are the best of all. May you teach us to constantly point to you and to embrace you as our good healer, Savior, Lord, and King. We ask these things in your name. Amen.